I'm Wayne Turner, and welcome to the daily podcast of Bible Track. I've developed Bible Track to be both a commentary and a daily Bible reading schedule. These podcasts cover the text and commentary, which may be found at www.bibletrack.org. So, for those who have a busy schedule but do have time to listen to the Bible being read, this podcast is for you. At the end of one year, you will have gone completely through the Bible. As we continue our chronological reading through the Gospels, today we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 19, Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 31, and Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. Today we're going to be looking at Jesus still ministering in Perea. That began back in John chapter 10, verse 40. Jesus returned to Bethany about one and a half miles from Jerusalem to raise Lazarus in John chapter 11. And after Lazarus, Jesus and his disciples went north away from Jerusalem. These events took place at least a week or so before Jesus' crucifixion. Uh, I base this conjecture upon the fact that the next event recorded by John is in Bethany six days before the crucifixion in John chapter 12. Now, today we're reading Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 30. But in Luke chapter 17, verse 11, we find that Jesus and his disciples had gone as far north as Samaria and Galilee, but now they're returning to Jerusalem. So here in today's passage, in Matthew chapter 19, verse 1, and Mark chapter 10, verse 1, we see Jesus leaving the Galilee area and once again entering Judea. In our first uh, section of Scripture today, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 19, verses 1 through 12, and Mark chapter 10, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 19, 1. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. They say unto him, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorce, and to put her away? He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. His disciples say unto him, If the case of the man be so with his wife, it is not good to marry. But he said unto them, All men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were so born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men. And there be eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. Now the parallel passage over in Mark chapter 10, beginning with verse 1. And he arose from thence, and cometh into the coast of Judea, by the farther side of Jordan, and the people resorted unto him again. And as he was wont, he taught them again. And the Pharisees came to him and asked him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife, tempting him? And he answered and said unto them, What did Moses command you? 
And they said, Moses suffered to write a bill of divorcement and to put her away. And Jesus answered and said unto them, For the hardness of your heart he wrote you this precept. But from the beginning of creation God made them male and female. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. So then they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. And in the house his disciples asked him again of the same matter. And he said unto them, Whosoever shall put away his wife and marry another committeth adultery against her. And if a woman shall put away her husband and be married to another, she committeth adultery. Now there's a key to understanding this passage, and it's found in Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. It says, The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? With regard to the law, Jewish history tells us that there were two different positions taught in Jesus' day by the Pharisees regarding the passage in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, and specifically verse 1, which says, When a man hath taken a wife and married her, and it come to pass that she find no favor in his eyes, because he hath found some uncleanness in her, then let him write her a bill of divorcement, and give it in her hand, and send her out of his house. Now among the Pharisees, two differing opinions about the legitimate grounds for divorce fell behind two prominent teachers, who were known as sages or rabbis. They were contemporaries during the time of Jesus' ministry, perhaps a little bit before Jesus' ministry. They were Shammai and Hillel. Shammai and his followers interpreted the expression to refer to gross indecency, though not necessarily adultery. Hillel, on the other hand, extended the meaning beyond sin to all kinds of real or imagined offenses, including an improperly cooked meal. The goal of the Pharisees in this discussion is to get Jesus to choose sides between Shammai's position or Hillel's position. So, Jesus, who's right on this issue? Well, Jesus, the master teacher, points out, neither of you is correct. In fact, he points out that the model for marriage is in Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, that says, Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. The provision for divorce was provided in the law by Moses because of a rejection of God's plan. In other words, Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4, those verses addressed man's shortcoming of sin. After all, isn't that what all the law does? In fact, Jesus' decree in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, is one that would appear to deviate from the written law of Moses altogether. It says, And I say unto you, Whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication, and shall marry another, committeth adultery, and whoso marrieth her which is put away, doth commit adultery. Well, the law of Moses is clear about the consequences of adultery in Leviticus chapter 20 and verse 10. It says, And the man that committeth adultery with another man's wife, even he that committeth adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Well, since the law provided that adulterers were to be stoned to death, it's curious that the Old Testament law would list this as grounds for divorce. Given the choice between Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, 
which is divorce, or Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10, which is death, which do you think an adulterous woman would choose? That causes us to consider that the justification for divorce in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, may have been the woman's sexual activity prior to marriage, but only discovered after marriage. One such scenario is addressed in the Law of Moses as well in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verses 13 to 21. However, in this case, the deceitful woman is stoned to death as well. So you can see why the Jews' oral traditions had parsed and double-parsed these Old Testament laws. Since the Pharisees didn't have the legal right under Roman rule to exercise executions, they may have revised these Old Testament laws to their times, a practice for which they were well known. One more point should be made here. There are at least a couple of scenarios that could arise under Mosaic law where the woman might have a sexual history prior to marriage, but not be a candidate for stoning. And look at the notes that I've written on Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4 for the details on that. Now, Jesus' final word on the issue takes a position that complies with neither of the contemporary teachings among the the Pharisees, not that of Shammai and not that of Hillel. His word is in Matthew chapter 19, verse 9, and it seems to include as the only grounds for putting away one's wife through divorce being her fornication, a term more general than adultery that actually encompasses all kinds of sexual indiscretions. In other words, the Greek word for adultery is moikia, It's a subset of the Greek word for fornication, which is pornea. It's important to note here that Jesus had not gathered his disciples around to comprehensively teach them about grounds for divorce. Matthew 19.3 tells us that his brief comments on the issue were in response to a trick question by the Pharisees. That's evidenced by the fact that the doctrinal aspect of this discourse is obviously abbreviated. In comparing these two passages, let's look more closely at the sequence of events on this discussion. It would appear that Jesus' word on this issue was given to the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 19, verses 8 and 9, but only to his disciples a second time after the confrontation with the Pharisees in Mark chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. Now, in the second uh, addressing of this issue, in the private gathering away from the Pharisees recorded in Mark's account, Jesus does not even include the phrase except for fornication, recorded by Matthew in Matthew 19, verse 9. The object of Jesus' words here being recorded is obviously to expose the inconsistencies of the Pharisees in their application of the law of Moses. Jesus actually does comment on marriage and divorce another time in Luke chapter 16, verses 14 through 18. There he is briefly noting the hypocrisy of the Pharisees on that issue there once again. For a more comprehensive treatment of the issue of marriage, divorce, and remarriage, see the notes that I've written and read the passage, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Our next section of Scripture is reported on by Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we answer the question, does the kingdom come by the force of united warriors? Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 through 15. Then were brought unto him little children, that he should put his hands on them and pray. And the disciples rebuked them. And Jesus said, Suffer little children, and forbid them not to come unto me. For of such is the kingdom of heaven. 
And he laid his hands on them and departed thence. Now Mark's reporting in Mark chapter 10, verses 13 through 16. And they brought young children to him that he should touch them, and his disciples rebuked those that brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was much displeased and said unto them, Suffer the little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, he shall not enter therein. And he took them up in his arms, put his hands upon them, and blessed them. Now from Luke's perspective, in Luke chapter 18, verses 15 through 17. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them unto him, and said, Suffer little children to come unto me, and forbid them not. For of such is the kingdom of God. Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child, shall in no wise enter therein. Well, in these short passages, Jesus points out that the kingdom of God will come as people respond to Jesus as little children when he says, For of such is the kingdom of God. The Jews in Jesus' day were thinking that the kingdom of God would be established by warfare against Rome, not with the attitudes of children. It's important to understand what's in view here. The kingdom of God here is a reference to the Old Testament prophecy that the Messiah would one day establish the rule of King David over the entire earth. Many like to use this passage to prove the salvation of small children. Well, I don't actually find that teaching here, although suggestions are made here regarding the innocence of children. Now, if you're interested in knowing more about the salvation of small children, then I'd like to encourage you to go over and read my comments that accompany uh, Matthew chapter 18, verses 1 through 7, Mark chapter 9, verse 33 to 42 is the parallel, and Luke chapter 9, verses 46 through 50. And I deal with it more in depth uh, in that passage as comprehensively as I believe it can properly be dealt with. In the next section of Scripture, we see that Jesus addresses the rich young ruler, and this is found in Matthew chapter 19, verses 16 to 26, Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 27, and Luke chapter 18, verses 18 to 27. Now first, Matthew 19, verse 16. And behold, one came and said unto him, Good master, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? And he said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is God. But if thou wilt enter into life, keep the commandments. He saith unto him, Which? Jesus said, Thou shalt do no murder, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother, and thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. The young man saith unto him, All these things have I kept from my youth up. What lack I yet? Jesus said unto him, If thou wilt be perfect, go and sell that thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Then said Jesus unto his disciples, Verily I say unto you, That rich man shall hardly enter into the kingdom of heaven. And again I say unto you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. When his disciples heard it, they were exceedingly amazed, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus beheld them and said unto them, 
With men, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Now let's look at Mark chapter 10, the parallel passage beginning in verse 17. And when he was gone forth into the way, there came one running and kneeled to him and asked him, Good master, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? There is none good but one, that is, God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, defraud not, honor thy father and mother. And he answered and said unto him, Master, all these have I observed from my youth. Then Jesus, beholding him, loved him and said unto him, One thing thou lackest, go thy way, sell whatsoever thou hast, and give to the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come take up the cross and follow me. And he was sad at that saying, and went away grieved, for he had great possessions. And Jesus looked round about and saith unto his disciples, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? And the disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again and saith unto them, Children, how hard is it for them that trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they were astonished out of measure, saying among themselves, Who then can be saved? And Jesus, looking upon them, saith, With men it is impossible, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. Now the parallel passage is somewhat abbreviated in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 18. And a certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good, save one, that is God. Thou knowest the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not kill, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor thy father and thy mother. And he said, All these things have I kept from my youth up. Now when Jesus heard these things, he said unto him, Yet lackest thou one thing, sell all that thou hast, and distribute unto the poor, and thou shalt have treasure in heaven, and come, follow me. And when he heard this, he was very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he was very sorrowful, he said, How hardly shall they that have riches enter into the kingdom of God? For it is easier for a camel to go through a needle's eye than for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. And they that heard it said, Who then can be saved? And he said, The things which are impossible with men are possible with God. Well, when taken out of context, this is a very confusing set of scriptures. The greatest confusion arises out of the actual question asked by the rich young ruler when he says, What good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? His question, per se, misses the point of Jesus' teaching on the kingdom of God with regard to children in the preceding verses and the subsequent teaching of the kingdom of God and kingdom of heaven that follows his question. Now, remember, the Pharisees felt that their religious standing would merit a place of prominence in the newly established kingdom of God on earth under the Messiah when it was established. Throughout this passage, the messianic kingdom on earth is in view here, not heaven itself. That's what the Jews in that day were looking forward to. This obviously is the backdrop behind this question from the rich young ruler as well. 
Being rich, it makes sense to him that a law-abiding rich guy should fit nicely into the framework of this kingdom of God, which he equates with eternal life. Jesus' reply is similar to his other calls for discipleship. Take a look at the notes that I've written on discipleship, and you'll find those on the written notes of Matthew chapter 16, verses 24 through 27, paralleled by Mark 8, 34 to 38, and Luke chapter 9, verses 23 to 26. In actuality, no one I know suggests that one can only be saved by selling everything and following Jesus in full-time Christian service. Therefore, it's quite clear here that this discussion isn't really about going to heaven, but rather kingdom on earth living, that kingdom that was prophesied in the Old Testament. Even though the man is asking about eternal life, perhaps thinking he's already got a clinch on that, Jesus clearly states conditions for this special purpose discipleship that he dealt with in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. So you see, you do not need to take a vow of poverty to be saved. Everybody knows that. Now, it's interesting to note here that this man professes to have kept all the commandments from his youth up, including thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. Well, if that's truly the case, giving his wealth to the poor shouldn't require a second thought, should it? Hey, that's not one of the Ten Commandments anyway. No, but it is clearly stated in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 18, when it says, Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. Then we see it's used to summarize commandments 5 through 10 in this passage, as well as in Matthew chapter 22, verse 39, and Mark chapter 12, verse 31. Also, you'll find it in Romans 13.9, Galatians 5.14, and James 2.8. Wow, that's a lot of places where we find that commandment, loving your neighbor as yourself, uh, as a summarizing of commandments 5 through 10. Well, it's the essence of the commandments that deal with one's relationship with other people. Let's face it, it's an ideal. But who truly fulfills the essence of this commandment except for Jesus himself. Obviously, this is a prideful man that comes to Jesus with an impressive resume, only to find that his personal accomplishments have no eternal implications whatsoever. Another aspect of Jesus' exchange with this man is the fact that Jesus had special insight into this man's thinking, uh, just as he did on the occasion in John chapter 2, verse 24, where it says there, but Jesus did not commit himself unto them because he knew all men. Jesus knew what was this man's motivation in asking his questions and literally what was in his heart. That probably accounts for the harsh treatment by Jesus. It's not reasonable to assume that Jesus issues a special condition for salvation to this man unlike those required of anyone else. There obviously was a deeper issue on the stage here. Subsequently, notice the comments from his disciples in the next passage demonstrating what they had gleaned from Jesus' conversation with this rich young ruler. It would appear, therefore, that his intent here is to buy his way into a prominent ruling position in the newly founded kingdom on earth. Well, that being the case, the conversation between Jesus and himself was not really about going to heaven at all. 
In our last section of Scripture today, we'll be reading about the 100-fold reward as recorded in Matthew chapter 19, verses 27 through 30, Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 31, and Luke chapter 18, verses 28 through 30. First, Matthew chapter 19, verse 27. Then answered Peter and said unto him, Behold, we have forsaken all, and followed thee. What shall we have therefore? And Jesus said unto them, Verily I say unto you, that ye which have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man shall sit in the throne of his glory, ye also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And every one that hath forsaken houses, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands for my name's sake, shall receive an hundredfold, and shall inherit everlasting life. But many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first." Now we look at Mark's passage, his parallel passage, beginning with Mark chapter 10, verse 28. Then Peter began to say unto him, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And Jesus answered and said, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or brethren, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or lands, for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now and this time, houses and brethren and sisters and mother and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. But many that are first shall be last and the last first. Then finally, Luke's perspective in Luke chapter 18, beginning with verse 28. Then Peter said, Lo, we have left all and followed thee. And he said unto them, Verily I say unto you, There is no man that hath left house, or parents, or brethren, or wife, or children, for the kingdom of God's sake, who shall not receive manifold more in this present time, and in the world to come, life everlasting. Now, here's what we see here. The passage that preceded this was about the uh, the conversation with the rich young ruler. And the disciples understand that teaching to be about ruling. This is obvious from their question, and Jesus addresses their question accordingly. He deals with a ruling structure in the Messianic rule on earth. He uses the term world to come in Luke chapter 18, verse 30. The Greek word for world here is different from several other occurrences in the King James Version. Here the word is ion. Translated variously ways, instead of cosmos, which is actually the word for world, always translated world, except in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 3, where it's translated adorning. Cosmos literally means orderly arrangement, and that's the word, the Greek word, from which our English word cosmetics comes from. Ion, on the other hand, is translated a number of ways, including world, but it always holds the context of a period of time, or in this case eternity, rather than a place. Jesus is making reference to an age to come being the kingdom of God on earth. Matthew's account drives this message home when he notes that Jesus included this promise to his disciples in verse 28, where he says, He also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Well, that takes place on earth during the millennium and in the new Jerusalem after that. It's not a heaven thing at all. It's interesting that this passage only accommodates 12 apostles. Many discussions take place in theological circles regarding who should be considered the 12th apostle, Matthias or Paul. 
If you'd like a greater understanding of that issue, consult my notes on Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. Matthew chapter 19 ends with verse 30, where Jesus says, Many that are first shall be last, and the last shall be first. There he's addressing the issue of man-contrived impressions with regard to whom is most deserving to enter the kingdom of God. We see that in verses 24 and 25. As stated in the previous section, these Pharisees felt that their religious standing should merit a place of prominence in the newly established kingdom of God on earth under the Messiah when it's established. Jesus continues this discussion in Matthew chapter 20. This concludes our podcast for today. I'm Wayne Turner, and if you'd like to read along with our commentary online, go to www.bibletrack.org. Thank you for listening in today. The background music for these podcasts is an original composition written by the music director of Fayette Bible Church, Paul Walton.